Little Richard died last month. He was 87 years old. You probably remember a few of his songs. Um, Tutti Frutti, Long Tall Sally, Good Golly Miss Molly. Whatever you think of him, he really was one of the early pioneers of rock and roll music. In fact, one article I recently read said this about him. It said his most celebrated work dates from the 1950s when his charismatic showmanship and dynamic music characterized by frenetic piano playing, pounding backbeat and raspy shouted vocals laid the foundation for rock and roll. But in the early 1960s, when he was really at the peak of his success, he left the rock and roll lifestyle behind, at least for a little while, and for five years focused only on Christianity. Even enrolling in a, in a Seventh-day Adventist college, um, I think it was in Alabama, to study theology. And he formed the Little Richard Evangelistic Team, traveling across the country to preach. I am sure that this was a sight to behold. But regardless of where he stood theologically, or whether or not he actually put his faith in Christ, Little Richard sang a number of gospel songs, recorded and sang a number of gospel songs, and sang them pretty well. He once said of the church music that influenced him when he was growing up, that the people in his neighborhood sang gospel songs throughout the day during segregation to keep a positive outlook. Because, quote, he said, there was so much poverty, so much prejudice in those days. He was speaking of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s growing up in Macon, Georgia. Bob Dylan was recently asked in an interview in the New York Times. I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. Bear with me. He was asked in an interview, why didn't people pay more attention to Little Richard's gospel music? It's his answer that I want you to hear this morning that set, to set the tone really for where we're going with today's passage of scripture. He said this, he said, probably because gospel music is the music of good news. And in these days, there just isn't any. Good news in today's world is like a fugitive, treated like a hoodlum and put on the run, castigated. And we see, all we see is good for nothing news. And we have to thank the media industry for that. It stirs people up. Gossip and dirty laundry. Dark news that depresses and horrifies you. And then he continues and says, On the other hand, gospel news is exemplary. It can give you courage. You can pace your life accordingly, or try to anyway. And you can do it with honor and principles. There are theories of truth in gospel music, but to most people it's unimportant. Their lives are lived out too fast, too many bad influences. Sex and politics and murder is the way to go if you want to get people's attention. That excites us and that's our problem. And you know what? Dylan's right. Or at least he's on the right track. Our world is obsessed with dark news. And even as Christians, we, we get sucked right into it when we, when we leave the TV on all the time. When we watch the talking heads hour after hour, when we scroll through headlines of sex and politics and murder day after day after day. But gospel news is exemplary. 
It gives us courage and hope. We can pace our lives according to gospel news and we can do it with honor and principles. Because as Christians, even though we weep and and even get the blues, even though we live in this world that is filled with sin and struggle and fight against it ourselves, we are to be marked by joy. So John chapter 17 As we have worked our way through Jesus' upper room discourse, um, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and now his kind of closing prayer, so to speak, we've seen what really are the most important things on his heart and mind as he commits his ministry, as he commits his disciples to the Father. He is concerned with glorifying the Father. He is concerned with following through on the covenant of redemption. He's concerned with the eternal lives of his own people and for their safety and their unity. He's concerned with the gospel. He's concerned with the, excuse me, with the word of God taking roots in the, in the hearts and minds of God's people who have been given to him. Jesus has prayed that this particular people, commonly called Christians, should be kept and marked. And as I said in my email to the church this week, Um, from this point on in this prayer, John 17, really from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, Jesus prays that his people would be marked by joy, mission, unity, love, holiness, and truth. As this chapter unfolds, we'll look at each of these individually. But let's just read this, John chapter 17, verses 13 to 26. We're only going to look at verse 13 today. But it says this, Jesus is praying and he says, But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, when you have given them, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's just pray again here. Father, help us to understand the words that Christ is praying for his disciples, for us, Lord. Give us ears to hear that we might become conformed to the image of Christ. 
We pray these things in his name. Amen. So, joy, mission, unity, love, holiness, truth. These are the things that should define us as Christians. These are the things that we should be striving toward as a, as a community of believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, there are other concepts that should define who we are as well. I don't believe this is an exhaustive list. So, for example, uh, Paul describes the, the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Holy Spirit's working in the lives of believers as being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And while there is some overlap between Paul's list, that's in Galatians, and this uh, prayer, uh, while there is some overlap, they're not identical And instead, they are ideas and they are qualities that should shape both how we live individually as God's people, how I live my life, but also how we live collectively as the church, as God's people assembled. And so as Jesus prays for his disciples here, and then he expands this prayer to include not only the eleven, not only these men who are with them, but also all who will believe in them, in him through their word, as he says, Christians throughout history, he he prays that his people would be marked by these things, would be marked by joy, would be marked by mission, would be marked by unity and love and holiness and truth. Verse 13 again says this, But now I am coming to you, that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. No one is more aware of his departure from this world, that it is imminent. No one is more aware of that than Jesus himself. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's been helping them to understand what he means when he talks about sacrifice and discipleship. And he's been proving his identity as the Christ. He's been proving to them that he is God's Messiah through his signs and his wonders and the words that he is saying. And he's also told them, been teaching them, both in metaphors and explicitly, that he would suffer and die and be raised from the dead. In fact, he has spent three years patiently teaching them the good news, patiently teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ, explaining the nature of his people's new relationship with God and proving his identity. And now the time has come for his humiliation. And the time has come for them to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. But Christ's kingdom is not like other kingdoms. This is what they have so struggled to comprehend as they have traveled with him and listened to him. Not only is his kingdom bigger, not only is his kingdom even eternal, But it's beyond the systems of this world. It is not bound by time or space. It is not bound by life and death. And so when God said to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, when he made this promise to him and said, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. When God made that covenantal promise to David, he was talking about Christ's kingdom. 
Jesus is the true and better son who will ascend the throne of David, whose kingdom will be made sure before the father forever. And Jesus is about to establish the new covenant in his blood and literally ascend to the throne, pass through the heavens and sit at the father's right hand. And as he leaves his disciples, he has prayed that his father would keep them safe in the strong tower of his own name. And so if you were here last week, we saw in the previous few verses that he has prayed for a particular people to be kept and marked. And that's where we left off, that they would be marked. And specifically here in verse 13, that they would be marked by joy. So, as I said, and I'm going to keep harping on these things, there are six characteristics of the church here and throughout the rest of this prayer. But this first one, joy, is probably the most obvious for us to pick out as we just read through the text. It stands out to us pretty easily that we would be marked by joy. But at the same time, it's probably the most surprising Especially when we remember the context of these words. His betrayal has just happened. His death, his arrest is coming up in the next couple hours, maybe less. His death is going to happen the next day. Think about the words that Paul quotes Jesus as saying when he writes about this sacrament in 1 Corinthians. I read this just a few minutes ago, but... Think about this. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He has said this just a few minutes, just a little bit before this. And so when we eat the bread and drink of the cup, it should bring us great joy. Remember what he has said to them, even just back in chapter 15, which really was probably a half hour before. He said, greater love has no one than this, as someone lay down his life for his friends. And Paul brings these ideas together, the ideas of death and joy. He brings it together in Romans chapter 5. So listen, to, listen for the joy that is wrapped up in his death. Romans 5 verses 6 through 11 says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. Even in the face of the death of our Savior, his disciples can rejoice. We can be filled with joy, but f rejoicing is filled with joy so that it's bubbling out of us, so that it can't help but come out, so we can't help but say hallelujah, praise God, praise his name. Because it means that we have been reconciled. 
It means that the penalty for our sins has been removed. It means that our debt has been paid. But let's explore this just a little bit more. Listen to verse 13 again there. John 17, 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Really, this statement, verse 13, is really his explanation of why he's been teaching and, and praying for them. That they may have his joy fulfilled. But these things that Jesus speaks... These things, what things is he talking about? Well, on the one hand, he's certainly talking about the things that he has been praying for. He has said these things in his prayer for the benefit of those who will hear his prayer. Or in our case, who will read his prayer as a part of scripture here. John chapter 17. Sometimes Jesus, when he prays, He prays personal, private prayers that are only known to the Father. We have many examples in the Gospels of Jesus going off by himself into the wilderness um, to pray. But we don't have the content of those prayers. We just know that he did it. But on a few occasions, we, we do actually have the content of the prayer, like here. A few times we're even told that we have it for our instruction and our benefit. So think of the Lord's Prayer, for example. In that case, the disciples specifically asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he did. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus was teaching them in that prayer. But sometimes the teaching is a little less overt. He specifically said that he was teaching them. Jesus has a way, though, at times of teaching through his prayers. In fact, in John chapter 11, verse 42, he even said to the Father, as he prayed, he said this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus spoke to the Father for the benefit of the people who were listening in, those who he said were were standing around. Just as an aside here, part of the reason why I'm explaining all of this and kind of parking here for a moment is this is the one one of the reasons why uh, the pastoral prayer that we pray every week. This is one of the reasons why we do this as a part of our worship. So on one hand, Scripture specifically instructs us to pray when we gather together, but I also want to take the opportunity to teach. The pastoral prayer is not a private prayer between me and the Lord that I let you listen in on. It's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer of all of us, where we all with one accord approach the mercy seat together and ask for God to work for His glory. And it's also a teaching prayer. It's a time for you to hear the prayers of your pastor for the church of Jesus Christ and to learn from the things being prayed for that we might pray for them throughout the week. We pray for God's name to be glorified, to be magnified, to be lifted high. 
We are reminded of his nature and his character. I will, when I pray, I will thank him for his grace and his mercy. I'll proclaim his holiness and justice as a way to remind one another of those truths. I'll pray for the lost, for the sick, for our own growth in righteousness, for government leaders, for other churches, partially so that you will hear those things and be reminded to pray for them during the week so that we will learn how to pray. That's part of what Jesus is doing here. But he's also demonstrating in a way that only he can as a, as a great high priest. He's demonstrating the depth of his communion with the Father. And he is therefore pointing us to the relationship that we also enjoy with the Father through prayer. This is what Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 14 to 16 is all about. Do, do you remember that passage? Hebrews 4, 4 to 16 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus, because of his work as great high priest, both in interceding for us in prayer and in his sacrificial offering of himself on our behalf. Because of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and have the same deep communion with the Father in prayer. And remember, we're talking about joy here. We're talking about joy. After Jesus is glorified, and he's prayed for this, really in the first five verses, it's all throughout the prayer, but the first five verses he really focuses on this. After he is glorified, when his disciples finally understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when the confusion and the fear and the grief that they're feeling now, that will be turned to joy. When Jesus is glorified, their confusion their grief, their fear is going to be turned to joy. And so not only is Jesus saying these things in his prayer for their joy, he's been teaching them all of this all along, all throughout his ministry and especially in these chapters. This points back to what he said back in chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, where, where Jesus' joy like that of the disciples for whom he prays, Jesus' joy is hinged on the Father's love, which itself is deeply connected to obedience to him. So in John 15, verses 10 and 11, he says this to his disciples. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's praying that his disciples would be kept safe, which is another way of saying that, that they would be preserved in the Father's love. He's praying that they would be obedient to him and, and remain standing steadfast on the word that he has taught them. That's back in verse 6, and it, it comes up again a little bit later. And as a result of this, as a result of being kept safe in God, safe in the name of God, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, his people are going to share in his joy. They're going to share in his joy. 
Remember, it's, it's his joy that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, he says. According to the, to the scriptures, it is essential that we as Christians live in this world with great joy. The Apostle Paul even gives this as an emphatic command in Philippians 4.4. 4. He repeats himself. He wants us to do this. This is a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's a command of Scripture. But there are times in Scripture when we are commanded to do something, yet that same thing is also seen as a gift. A good example of this is is giving, financial contributions. Christians are commanded to support the work of the ministry through giving money to the church. Look at the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Yet Romans 12 teaches us that contributing to the church is also a gift given to certain people. So for some, these things come easier than others. Some of you would agree with that. For some, it comes easier than others. Christ is is giving us his joy, but he's also commanding us to rejoice. It's essential that we Christians live in this world with great joy. It's one of the ways in which we are distinct from the world. There is very little joy in the world right now. But Christians should be living with great joy. But what is our default? Again, I'm going to harp on this a little bit because this really gets me. But for so many of us, our default is to seek out those things that destroy joy. The example that I'm giving is one that I struggle with. So, But we turn on the news and we stay there just a little bit too long. We scroll through Facebook or Twitter and we see bickering and backbiting and passive aggressiveness and so forth. And we just kind of stay there. But the prophets, the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. They looked forward to Christ's kingdom, even the day that we live now as a time of great joy. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah said this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now I will admit that we are living in the not yet. That this stuff hasn't fully come true yet. But we are living in Christ. Which means we're also living in the already. And so we must rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's our duty and our privilege to respond to God's grace in our lives with joy and rejoicing. I recently ran across... Uh, This quote by Jerry Bridges, it's from his book, The Practice of Godliness. Bridges writes this, he says, To be joyless is to dishonor God and deny his love and his control over our lives. It's practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and to say to a watching world, Our God reigns. Our world needs that message now more than more than any time in my recent memory. Every week, it seems, our world needs to be reminded of the message, 
our God reigns. And every week I need to be reminded of that. And so what message do you regularly send to the watching world? Let me give you three quick and specific reasons why Christ's people should be marked by joy. In some ways, this will be a little bit of a review or a a summary of all of this. Why we should be marked by joy. Number one, this should be the most blatant and obvious reason for us today. Christians should be marked by joy because Christ died for our sins and continues to intercede for us in heaven. This is his high priestly work. He prays for us. Christ died for our sins. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We should be marked by joy because Christ died for our sins and continues to intercede for us in heaven. We can rejoice knowing that we are kept safe by God for his glory and that Jesus is continuing to pray for us. Number two. We can rejoice. We can be marked by joy because we have a deep and genuine communion with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. We're going to talk about this a little bit more um, in Sunday school in a few weeks when we resume, Lord willing. But one of the reasons we've used this opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, weekly, is because we need more of Christ. We need to be reminded of his covenant, his promise to us more often. We come through a time where we were not able to meet for a couple of months. Where at best we could see each other on a computer screen. We need to be reminded. Boy, those things can drive us into depression. I don't know about you. But it can be difficult to not be able to get together. I'm so excited to be able to gather together outside. That's our house, so gather together in our backyard every week. I'm thankful that the weather's been gorgeous so that we can stand out here and praise God together. And I'll be thankful when we can move back inside in the air conditioning where there's no wind and Harley's driving by and when we can hear each other sing again. I love to sing with you. We need to be reminded of who Christ is and what he has done. We need more of Christ. We need to be reminded of his covenant with us, his promises to us more often. We need to be reminded of his death for sin and that this is a cause for joy. Jesus Christ rejoiced to do the will of the Father and he prayed here that they may have my joy fulfilled in himself. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 calls us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We should come to the table as often as we can because we so easily forget that. The joy that is set before him. We so easily look to Tucker Carlson or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever when we should be looking to Jesus, the source of our joy. And then number three, Christians should be marked by joy because we've been given this same priestly ministry today. This chapter is sometimes called his high priestly prayer because he goes to the Father on our behalf. 
But in doing this, he opens up for us the new responsibility to intercede for one another. The priesthood of all believers, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.9. This means that, that part of the duty and privilege we have toward one another is a priestly duty and privilege. The great high priest has once for all made a sacrificial offering. And now we join him in his work of interceding for one another. He said back in chapter 16. He said, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Because of Jesus, because of his work, we can go to the Father along with Jesus and we can pray for one another and he will answer our prayers that our joy may be full. How joyful is it when we pray for Diana and her brain surgery? couple weeks ago and we get good news that's the joy that we're talking about the joy that knowing that no matter what the outcome of the news is when we pray for one another Diana is safe in the arms of God no matter what happens we can rejoice in those things we can rejoice for one another our joy may be full beloved we can be joyful genuinely because he has promised to keep us he is praying for us he has poured out his spirit upon us because his promises are being fulfilled he because he has overcome the world and so we we have joy because of his body and his blood because he will return we can sing gospel songs in our lives with joy regardless of our circumstances or maybe in spite of our circumstances. Let me close this morning by simply reminding you of the truth that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 in his kind of his introduction to his letter, verses 3 to 9 says this. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Guarded by faith, kept in the name of God. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We can have joy because of what Jesus did. We are marked with joy. We are given Christ's joy because of his work on the cross. And so the 
The take home today is pretty simple. Rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even as Peter writes here, though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials, that we would be reminded that the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, that that may be found a result in praise and glory and honor when we see Jesus Christ. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we don't see him right now, we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we wait to see Christ face to face. Father, I pray that we would rejoice without ceasing. Change our hearts, Lord. Change our minds that we would be firmly planted on who Jesus is and what he has done and not in the circumstances around us. That we individually and we as a church would be marked by joy. A joy that cannot be taken from us because it is the joy of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.